Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Tech Policy Grind, the Internet Law and Policy Foundries podcast for emerging issues in tech policy. I'm here with the lovely Lama Muhammad. Hey! And my name is Rima Musa, and we are both current fellows at the Foundry. So before we get into today's episode, which is an interview with Edward McNair of Nanog, uh, featuring another Foundry fellow, Joe Catapano. We're going to get into some of the big news this week. So, Lama, want to kick us off with a disclaimer and then get into it? Yes, please. So, as always, before we begin our new segment, we'd just like to disclose that the opinions and stories discussed on this new segment do not reflect the organizations, companies, or universities slash institutions that we are affiliated with. We are just two policy slash legal wonks um, trying to make sense of this world that is tech policy. One of the biggest things that has been going on this week that people have seen probably all over Twitter and even LinkedIn is this new chatbot from OpenAI. This is not the first time OpenAI, which is a San Francisco-based AI company, has seen major success following a beta testing release of new tech. This was also the company responsible for developing Dolly 2, which is the image generator that came earlier this year. Um, But essentially, this new chatbot is called GPT. GPT stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer, and it has stood out specifically because AI chatbots have been pretty awful for the last decade, and chat GPT hits different. But while it's exciting and fun to use, of course, there are always some risks that need to be considered. And uh, when you open beta testing to the public, there's also a potential possibility of seeing backlash if OpenAI seems a little bit aggressive and filtering out specific comments. Who knows? And I, I'd be ex- I'm excited to see where this progresses next. Uh, but moving on from AI, AI, what's going on in the world of content moderation, Rima? Yeah, well, one big headline this week is the Journalism Competition and Preservation Act and the industry and civil society response to it. So on Monday, Meta threatened to remove news from its platform should Congress pass this proposal. And one of the key aims of this proposal is to make it easier for news organizations to negotiate collectively with companies uh, like Alphabet, uh, Alphabet's Google, and Meta. So Meta is concerned that the bill unfairly disregards value that its platforms provide to news outlets through increased traffic and subscriptions and other marketing benefits. Not just Meta has responded on Monday as well. The ACLU, Public Knowledge, CCIA, and other nonprofits and industry organizations also fired back against the bill with concerns that it would create an ill-advised antitrust exemption for publishers and broadcasters. So we'll see what comes out of this proposal Uh, But it's yet another proposed bill in 
these late stages here of 2022 uh, that's facing backlash from industry and civil society alike, similar to the Kids Online Safety Act. And we discussed some of the backlash to that proposal um, during last week's episode. So be sure to check that out. And now we're going to turn it over to our episode with Edward McNair and Joe Catapano. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Tech Policy Grind podcast. This is Joe Catapano, uh, part of the Class Four of Internet Law and Policy Foundry Fellows. I'm here with Edward McNair. Uh, Edward is the Executive Director of the North American Network Operators Group. He is also the co-founder of Cascadian, an agency that provides branding, marketing, and sales support for startups and new businesses. Prior to Cascadian, Edward served as Chief Executive Officer for Verilan, an IT company that delivered just-in-time enterprise-quality networks. Previously, he was Vice President of Internet Marketing for R2C, a leading direct marketing agency, and was Creative Director for the WiMAX Forum, a global internet and telecom consortium. So uh, those that have listened to the podcast before uh, know that in my day job, I am on the stakeholder engagement team for the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers. And Nanog is one of the groups that we frequently interact with. And on the Tech Policy Grind podcast, we talk often a lot about policymaking in tech from the legal perspective and also from, of course, the government perspective. But we haven't really talked a lot about how technologists fit into this universe and kind of what, what happens in those arenas. And so I'm really excited to have Edward here with us today. Edward, welcome. Thank you. And so, Edward, why don't we start out? Could you tell us a little bit about Nanog? Who makes up the community? What types of things do they work on? And how are they involved? No, thank you. Um, as you said earlier, um, Nanog stands for the North American Network Operators Group. Um, it is uh, an organization that was founded from the community within the network operating community, and it was established to help continuing education efforts for those within the community. Um, when the Internet started to build itself, especially from a corporate standpoint across North America, there was little in the way of standards. There was little in the way of, of courses or education that you could have had to give you the information that you needed to build um, a network. And that's kind of where Nanox started. It was a community-led organization that was focusing on training and building the next generation of network professionals, those who are going to create the infrastructure across North America. Okay. And how old is Nanog? When did it start, right? So ICANN was 98 and Aaron was predated ICANN. So yeah, and ICANN, I'm sorry, uh, Nanog kind of takes its roots back uh, when the NFS NFSnet was kind of created. They were tasked, Merit was, to re-engineer the NSFnet, uh, to modernize it for uh, basically to work in kind of a, a corporate infrastructure. And um, Nanog birthed itself out of the Merit community. 
So um, we kind of go back informally to 1987, but in an actual uh, incarnation of a real organization, um, you're talking about 1994 when that took place. Um, and again, it was still part of, of Merit Networks. And in 2011, the Nana community voted to separate from Merit and to form its own separate uh, nonprofit organization. Excellent. And there are there are other NOGs, as we call them, uh, throughout the world as well, right? Mm -hmm. So, so Nanog is in North America. Absolutely. There, there are several others as well. So it really is a, a, a global community um, that works together, and, and that's really fascinating. So as I had mentioned at the top, when we talk about tech policy, people's brains kind of immediately go to lawyers and elected officials, which is, of course, part of it. Um, but technologists are also part of uh, policymaking in tech. So how... In your eyes, what role do NANOG members play in affecting tech policy? Well, it's interesting that you ask that question because, um, um, and there's, there's a twofold answer I'm going to give. Uh, on one side, when the internet was created, there was no policy. And um, a lot of the policy that came forth was a result of, of uh, bad actors within the space or controls that needed to happen. Um, and typically, Policies are created after the fact. They're not um, uh, proactive. They're, they're reactive. Um, so there's that. But that's not the question you're really asking me. What you're asking me is how does our community involved in um, establishing policy? Um, and that comes from um, uh, largely it's from um, competition. Uh, sometimes policy is necessary to create a level and fair playing field. Um, sometimes that there are even nonprofit organizations within the Internet ecosystem who are pushing and protect, trying to protect consumers, which kind of pushes the, the policy angle of it. Um, oftentimes, um, I think in the internet space, which is unique from other spaces, is that it was self-organizing for a long time. I mean, even the existence of, of, of ICANN as an organization, um, it's something that it wouldn't kind of occur in most kind of ecosystems. Um, but with the internet, you have this, this system that is so complex that most governments don't understand it don't have the ability to kind of manage it. Um, and so it breeds kind of this self-organization with government oversight on top of it. Um, in terms of from, uh, also from a perspective of, of, of NANOG, we also partner with an organization called IETF. And IETF is a, is a tech standard body, which helps to maintain certain best practices. Because one of the things that you ran into in, in creating a, a global internet, or I'll speak from North America, a broader kind of national uh, in-work internet is that you have different players who are trying to participate. And without having some kind of standards or policies, it becomes a wild, wild west and nothing would work. So our, our internet that we have is a, is a result of inner cooperation, um, it policy, and open standards uh, for technology. Have you seen, you know, we've, obviously this year was a very busy year in terms of policy uh, on the, in the global sense with uh, we had the ITU plenipotentiary, um, you're uh, about to be uh, uh, in attendance at the Internet Governance Forum, which we'll get to in a minute, um, mm -hmm. and a host of other meetings. So there, you know, we could spend an hour on the kind of ITU thing. Um, but there has been kind of an, an increasing almost hyper awareness in our circles of 
what's happening at some of these, you know, multilateral bodies. Um, are you seeing in the Nanog community that kind of uptick in paying attention to, you know, uh, I, you know, kind of like public policy, for lack of a better yeah. word, on the global scale, and also obviously from the North America sense, uh, since since your members are based yeah. uh, based in North America, are you seeing kind of an uptick in that, and how is it affecting um, kind of what Nanog uh, is doing, how it's operating? Uh, well, I think there's quite a bit of an uptake. I think that um, the trouble with being North American based, um, we sometimes view ourselves as the center of the universe. And um, the Internet is a, is a global resource. And then there's certain, or, uh, you know, uh, countries, certain organizations which are trying to, um, some are trying to control it. Um, some are trying to protect the, on the consumer side of things. And there's just a bit of a tug of war that's going on right now. And so uh, that policy definitely affects network engineers. It affects the networks that they build. It, it, it affects the interoperability that they do across the globe. So uh, now more than ever, they're becoming very, very aware of what's happening um, politically and globally with regard to the internet, um, its resource, and how they're going to be able to, to, to deal and work with other groups outside of the United States. So yes, it's, it's become, they're becoming quite aware of it. So can you kind of give the audience a sense of kind of Nanog's, you know, meeting structure and kind of how that, okay. uh, what that looks like, right? So you meet three times a year um, mm -hmm. at different places throughout the region. Uh, so if maybe you walk us through that from uh, a participant's point of view, but also from, from your point of view as, as the organizer. Sure. So we um, have a, a triannual, a triannual conference schedule. Um, these locations are picked several years in advance. Um, we focus on education from a standpoint of continuing education. We have speakers from um, across North America and across the globe who will submit talks in for um, for consideration for our events. Uh, we have a uh, a program committee that is um, uh, selected from volunteers within the community who will take and evaluate talks and vote on them to see if they uh, meet a certain threshold or standard for our community. Um, and these talks range from anything from technical to some are uh, policy-based. Um, there was a, a talk at our last meeting from um, a gentleman from ISOC, and he talked about some of the things that were taking place in, in the government, in the governance sphere um, and policy that would could affect network operators. Um, we have the meetings last for three days. Um, in the in the event, there's a little pre-events that happen prior. So we'll have a hackathon. We'll have some formal uh, educational courses that take place. And then at the meetings, there, there are three-day meetings. Um, they have quite a full agenda. We also have a, a virtual platform where we, people can attend and participate virtually as well. Um, and um, they are um, a lot of work to put on. We have between, on average, I'd say between 900 and 1,300 people who attend our conferences, um, which range from industry professionals to students. Um, and again, we have typically at our events, even though they are, we are North American based, we'll have people from 20 to 30 different countries outside of North America. 
Absolutely. And, and I will say that the, the Nanog meetings are, are definitely some of the most fun that I attend um, in my in, in my travels important. Uh, you know, for, for ICANN. Um, it's, it's really is it's a great community and it's uh, there's just a sense of solidarity, I think, in this community that is, that is quite unique um, in this space. So if you're participating, let's say you're participating in a Nanog meeting, um, either in person or virtually, but um, mm-hmm but maybe maybe more so in person um what are kind of the things you feel like what are the must do's for you and maybe what are things that that maybe you should either avoid or or i don't know just kind of tips for someone attending well i'd say the first thing for someone who's attending a nanog meeting is to not wear a tie um that won't go over very well I think the typical dress is um, T-shirts and jeans. It's a very, very casual atmosphere. That said, um, I come from a long standing of wearing suits and ties. So I always kind of wear a lightweight blazer and a pair of jeans or something like that. But it's a casual setting. Um, These people are focused on the technology. Um, They're not there to impress you with how they dress or whatever. They're there to either do business because a lot of people come to our events because we have... Um, representations from, you know, all across the tech sphere, especially in that internet space. Um, and um, they want to do business. Um, we have great speakers, so they want to hear the talks. Um, it's a great social networking environment. We have um, our, we'll also have a fun social. Um, and then we'll also have what we call our beer and gear, which is our closest thing to a trade show. And where beer gear came about, a lot of the sponsors said, hey, we want to do a trade show. And the community came back and says, no way, we don't want a trade show. But if you buy us beer, we'll, t- we'll take a listen to your spiel. And that's how Beer and Gear came about. So they basically is, we'll, sh- we'll, we'll set you a little kind of little space on a six-foot table to talk about what you do. But in exchange, you want beer and food. So that's kind of how Beer and Gear came about. But um, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, you learn a lot. Um, you meet some great people. Um, we have a very... Um, uh, hospitable or uh, community and uh, newcomers are always welcome. It's interesting you you brought up the uh, the suit and tie part. So I remember I was on the job at ICANN for three months, maybe when I went to my first Nanog meeting. It was in Atlanta, which ironically or coincidentally is where the next the next meeting is. Sure, um, yeah, and I showed up you know, Washington guy, suit and tie, whatever. And I'm in line at registration and nobody laughed at me because it's a very kind community. But like, I was like, the looks, I was like, oh no. <laughs> and so I'm sitting there yeah. like very well, embarrassed. I'm like frantically taking my tie off and like, kind of like, okay, <laughs> I got to figure this out. I got to get up to the room, figure this out, change. And um, but it was funny. Yeah, most people think if you come in a suit and tie, either you work for government or you work for the FBI. That's going to be the right. assumption, right. and that's why everybody's right. going to be looking at you that way. Which, which, which I I, I did for neither, but um, but it was just interesting just at that time, right? Because I mean, it's just you know, kind of trying to to bridge the kind of engagement gap between Nanog and ICANN at that point. Um, it was just, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it was just, it's just kind of very interesting. Um, and then of course that was, uh, that was a meeting where I wound up getting stuck and a lot of people did too, cause it was a massive ice storm. Oh but... yes. Yes. <laughs> the snow, the snow apocalypse in Atlanta. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I was there for a couple of days, but, uh, but it was, um, it was very interesting. So 
let's think about you know kind of nano meetings right and in the through the lens of the pandemic right and and also um just over time in general right so how have the meetings evolved from you know pre-pandemic you know up until now yeah uh, for nanog the pandemic was kind of um I don't know. I think it was one of those things, those incidents that happened that make you just kind of reevaluate your reality. Um, um, Nanog as an entity had been very focused on our conferences. Um, and the question came is, can Nanog exist without a conference? Um, it made us really go back and kind of evaluate what is the best way to continue to serve our community, even if something happens and we can't do a traditional meetings. Um, so one thing that we did, because we were a technology-based company, at our first event, we were fortunate enough to find a, a partner to help us uh, provide virtual services. Um, our community, they are the most technical people on the planet. And so any system that you deliver to them, they're going to pick holes in it and find fault, which led us to building our own virtual platform. So we, in a, in a course of about three months, we built our own um, virtual platform that we now use to serve our virtual um, attendees. Um, in addition, it made us kind of focus a little more on outreach. How can we grow our community beyond just the people who know who we are? And how do we look at kind of bringing in the next generation of, of, of network professionals? Um, so we now have virtualized almost every component of our um, of our events. So you can participate virtually or you can participate in person. Even our hackathons both have a virtual component and an in-person um, component. Um, we are now teaming up with other organizations to deliver um, uh, in ISOC in particular this one and delivering some online content for education and training. So the pandemic for us was really kind of a big challenge. Uh, fortunately though, uh, previous boards had decided to put in kind of a, a rather sizable sum of, of, of money as a rainy day fund, fund, just in case we hit into bad times. But no one thought that you, uh, something or a situation occurred where we couldn't have meetings at all. Um, but those funds allowed us to get through um, the pandemic and also allowed us to develop and grow during the course of the pandemic. So as far as Nanog is concerned, we're coming out of this pandemic stronger than we were going into it, but it really was a big reality check for the organization. So we talked a little bit before about that there are different, you know, kind of nogs in different parts of the world. Uh, can you kind of put a little more color to the global nature of like the relationships sure. between the nogs and how you guys work together? You know, um, I, I, to be honest, I think it's something that we could do better at. Um, I think that um, the the English speaking nogs tend to, um, and I can speak of what it, within the connections that we have. For example, UK NOF, um, also you know, organize, like organize smaller nogs within the United States. We do have some um, collaboration together. Most of that collaboration comes in attending each one of each other's um, events. Um, we're trying to expand that out and formalize that to find ways that um, NOGs can work together globally in the effort to be able to support the efforts uh, of, of smaller NOGs. NANOG, for us, we're fortunate. We're the largest NOG, and we were the first NOG. And so we have resources that some of the smaller NOGs do not have. So one initiative, again, as I mentioned during the pandemic, we invested a lot in development of tools. We built our own uh, virtual platform. We built our own registration system. 
Um, we've just recently built our own appointment tool for people scheduling appointments and events. We've uh, made our PC tool a lot more robust. And there's other tools that we're building. And so now we're trying to figure out ways that we can share these things that we've built with other NOGs across the globe in an effort to kind of um, level the playing field, um, to give them some of the resources that they couldn't afford to have from uh, being organizations the size there are. Most NOGs are relatively small. They have little if no staff, and they're all manned by um, or personed by volunteers. And so what we hope to do by sharing our resources is enable them to have uh, the latest tools and technologies to service their community without having to go through the development and having the additional staff and the resources to be able to do so. So we're hoping that that initiative will help to, to kind of bind NOGS even closer. Um, I think there's even an opportunity, again, because we're bigger, we generate a lot of our own content. In addition to um, all of our, our talks, which are recorded and then put on YouTube, or also can be accessed through our sites, we also generate original content. Um, we have the Internet Innovator Series where we focus on um, um, uh, individuals in the community who help kind of help birth the modern Internet. Um, we do uh, webinars that are targeted toward um, young people. Um, we do uh, different kinds of outreach in the community where we, we are creating content. We have newsletters. We write articles. And what we're hoping is that we can also share those across the globe as well. So someone could choose to say, yes, I want to I'm going to run this Nanog article or in the other vein. So maybe someone creates an article or story and then we can share it with our community. So one of the things that we hope to do is expand and have greater collaboration through Nogs. And we think that doing it through our our software resources could be a good place to start. So I'd like to pivot a little bit more toward your kind of personal journey, right? So how did mm -hmm. how did you get to Nanog, and how, what was your path to where you are now uh, as executive director? Well, I took the the I guess call it the road less traveled. Um, I came in college. I studied um, English literature with a minor in art and classical literature. Um, I didn't touch a computer until I was in my 20s. Even in college, I typed my papers on a manual typewriter. In fact, I'd be honest to say I had an aversion to technology. And I was about 25 years old and I was walking down the street and I saw a sign that said, IBM PC clones, 95% compatible. And then suddenly it's like a light went off my head and said, this is not a fad. This is really going to take off. So the next day I bought a um, computer, set looking at a green DOS prompt and started learning everything I could about it. And in, in my prior life, again, I was working in, um, uh, in sales um, and management, which then um, I was worked at Nordstrom's. I was a men's suit manager and did other management roles for, for Nordstrom for like seven and a half years. Um, and then I shifted into uh, uh, to some more corporate sales. And um, this was years ago. Uh, Microsoft Word was just coming out. And a friend of mine said to me, hey, we're, we, we need an instructor for a, for a course to teach Microsoft Word. And I said, okay, that's nice. And then he says, I said, why are you asking me? He goes, well, you know, you learn a lot of stuff and you're a good communicator. You'd be a great teacher. And I said, oh, no, no, I'm not going to do that. And uh, this was in the in the 80s. And um, no, sorry, this is in the early 90s. And he said to me, 
uh, well, you know, they're going to pay you $25 an hour to teach. And I said, well, did they have an instructor command? He goes, yeah. So I said, sure. So taught my first class, got strong reviews. Uh, oh, and just to put things in context, I do a lot of community theater. So getting in front of people and talking and presenting was was easy. So to me, saying, do you have an instructor's manual? was like saying, do you for this? If you have a script, I can turn around and, and, and perform this, this class is the way I looked at it. Um, and then they started asking me, hey, we need a class for this. Can you, can you, can you, you know, create a course? So then I started creating coursework. Um, and then I uh, shifted into the internet came about and I was so curious, started learning all that I could. And then I got asked to support someone doing, uh, teaching a, 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 a internet class at a, at a small uh, college. And so I was there assisting and then they realized I knew more than he did. So I started teaching web design classes. And then I started creating my own curriculum and, you know, JavaScript, CSS, whatever. And I taught for 12 and a half years. And then I shifted into, I had a creative background too. So I ended up working at the YMAX Forum as a creative director. Then I went into um, um, Bearland, delivering technical services, which, you know, pushed me on to where I am now. So I know it's not the, the normal path people got take, but that's how I got here. No, it's great. I mean, I think it, it's 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 just so interesting hearing kind of an you know alternative path, if you will, for for getting involved in some of this stuff. It's 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 fascinating, and it 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 reinforces the fact that you don't have to right be you know a computer science major or you know something to 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 move into this area, right? I mean, I, I speak from experience as well, right? I mean, I'm not from a tech background. Well, you know, the th one of the things is too is, uh, I'll just want to say this one thing about what really attracted me to technology. Um, it's ever-changing. It forces you to continually learn um, to keep up with what's going on. And for some people that find that exhausting, I discovered I get bored easy and I'm always looking for a new challenge. So with technology, there's always something new. There's always, even if you know a given thing, if you don't continue to learn more within three or four years, what you know is, you know, irrelevant. So um, I like that about tech. It just keeps me into it. And I enjoy that. What's your favorite piece of literature? Wow. Um, I would probably say um, Cannery Row by Steinbeck. Um, I, I love that, um, in terms of, uh, just literature book that I've read in general, that I really enjoyed a lot. Um, I read a lot of, uh, tech stuff, but I also read a lot of mesophysical, mesophysical, physical literature. So, um, I think a book that has stayed with me for a long time, and I kind of always go back to it is The Road Less Traveled by M. Scott Peck. Um, it's a lot of has become my, my way of stabbing my, my, my true North. So I, it's always a part of me. Uh, so we talked about, you know, path less traveled, how people get to different, you know, uh, zones and, and get into, to, to mm -hmm. these, you know, kind of, kind of areas that we work in now. So how can young people who are passionate about the work or about the space, uh, get involved in at Manog. 
Um, well, of course. I mean, you're always welcome in the Nanon community. I think um, I think the first place to start is uh, YouTube. Um, do a search on YouTube for Nanog, and literally there are hundreds of talks there where you can kind of get up to speed on on, on hundreds of topics related toward um, internet infrastructure. Um, you can participate in our virtual meetings. Um, if you go to our website as, as uh, nanog.org, um, and you'll see what our upcoming uh, events and, and, and um, uh, 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 talks are going to be. Um, I think that you should attend a Nanog meeting. Um, I think that you will um, find it fascinating. Um, and if you're if you're not technical enough, I think that you can start out by participating in our hackathon. We welcome newcomers to our hackathon, people who aren't readily skilled, and there'll be people who can kind of help support you um, through that that process of connecting. Um, I think one thing that's unique about the internet space uh, in terms of career paths. Um, a lot of organizations are kind of dropping their, their college requirements uh, because so many people within the space are self-taught. Um, Apple has dropped them. Um, Google has dropped them. I know that Mozilla has dropped them. Um, and the reason being is because so many people are self-taught. Um, uh, it's more about what you know. And um, I think that what's great about it, it allows you to accelerate at your own uh, pace so, um, you know, jump in, get involved. Like I, say, like I say, get on YouTube, go to our website. There's all kinds of resources you'll find there. Um, uh, you can go to our uh, virtual meetings. Um, there are, we have a complimentary option, so it doesn't cost you anything to participate. Um, and you're a full-fledged, you know, member. We, if you have asked a question at a talk that you're watching live, someone will answer your question. So uh, it's a great way to get started. Excellent. Uh, the last thing I want to touch on is, uh, you know, a couple months ago, um, I had the pleasure of joining you in uh, Montgomery, Alabama, for uh, Nanog. What was you call Nanog U, right? Yeah. Nanog University. Uh, the the foundry prides itself on the diversity of its members, uh, or fellows rather. And if you could just give us a little bit uh, on the Nanog U effort and how Nanog is reaching out to, to the communities? Well, that's a very good question. So um, let me go back to kind of the beginning. Um, Nanog itself as an organization is largely white, largely middle-aged, and largely male. And um, we know that that doesn't represent the world in which we live. Um, and the community takes us very seriously. And so our outreach efforts are a part of trying to change that dynamic. It's trying to go into areas where a Nanog uh, event typically wouldn't happen. It's trying to focus on supporting underserved areas within um, North America. Um, its focus is on bringing a bit of Nanog to them and helping to try to help them get engaged into community to see the opportunities that are there. Um, the particular event that we saw that you were participating in, in in Montgomery, it kind of is broken in two halves. One half is kind of just a, a brief introduction to the technology and the organizations that are part of this um, this community that, and, and basically how you can get involved and get engaged in them. And then the second half is the focus is on careers, opportunities, what, what kind of jobs are available, what kind of training or education that you need to know. What was the path that a lot of these people took to get in to become a part of that post community? Uh, the part of the field. 
And so it's a big focus on outreach to trying to change that dynamic, to try to, to level that, that playing field. Um, I have a, a, a passion in this area, not just because I'm, I'm African-American, but um, just because the need is so great. You know, um, you know, for example, here's something that people aren't aware of, that there are millions of Americans who do not have Internet access at all. Um, the wealthiest nation in, in the world. And there are people within who not only do not have internet, do not even have electricity. And to me, that is just, it's an absolute shame. And um, it's not a full open society until everyone has a seat at the table. Everyone has an opportunity to participate. And our outreach initiatives are about changing that. And um, our organization, my staff, our board, and our community are very committed to this and to, to making that change. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, well, Edward, this has been a, a fantastic conversation. Thank you for taking a few moments uh, you know, out of your day, night. I guess it's <laughs> early morning and uh, early morning over, yeah. over in Kenya. Kenya. Yeah. Um, and I encourage uh, anyone out there who's listening to uh, take some time out, uh, you know, visit nanog.org and um, really kind of start taking a look at, at, at this part of the, of the community. If you're, if you're, you know, a network operator or, or on the technical side of things, uh, it's really a, a great community and a good way to be involved. So thanks again, Edward, and I will see you in Atlanta. Uh, thank you so much. And, and one last thing on our website, there's a feedback button. If you have any questions about becoming engaged or involved in the community, go ahead and click that, leave a message. Um, staff sees it, I see them all. And so don't be surprised if you uh, leave a message and you see a response from me. So um, welcome to the Nanlog community. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Tech Policy Grind podcast. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating wherever you're listening. I'm Rima Musa. And I'm the producer, editor, and host of the show, and want to give a huge shout out and thank you to our whole team at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry for making this podcast come to life, especially Lama Muhammad, our social coordinator, and Allison McReynolds, our accessibility coordinator. <laughs>